one for mum, one for dad, and one for the country. And there has never been a more exciting time to be an Australian. Budgets are about choices, Fran, and you show what you value through the choices you make. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't be scared. Treasurer, the Treasurer knows. We'll just end up being a third-rate economy, you know, a banana republic. I want an economy that works for people, not the other way around. Just follow the money. G'day, and welcome to Follow the Money, the Australia Institute's podcast that explains big economic issues in plain English. I'm Ebony Bennett, Deputy Director at the Australia Institute, and today we are nearly at the end of the first sitting fortnight of the 47th Parliament, and it has been a packed agenda and a very busy beginning to the Parliament. It is now my duty and my honour to declare the 47th Parliament of the Commonwealth of Australia open. My government's solemn promise to implement the Uluru Statement from the Heart in full. To the colonising Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Senator Thorpe. Our plan is all about making childcare cheaper, making medicines cheaper, real wages growing again in this country. of June, the Prime Minister and I notified the United Nations of our new climate targets. The country you ditch these unaffordable tax cuts for billionaires and put dental into Medicare instead. Fitco has another wonderful time. flagship. The member's in your time has that- expired. So to give you a quick recap of just how much things have changed in this new parliament and what changes are likely on the horizon, I'm joined by Bill Brown, head of the Australia Institute's Democracy and Accountability Program. G'day, Bill. Good morning, Ebony. Bill, the crossbench uh, is much, much bigger in this parliament than previous parliaments, and now obviously all the new MPs and senators have been sworn in. And there have been some reforms, for example, I think to question time already to reflect that kind of change in numbers. What can you tell us about some of those reforms? Yeah, one of the first suite of reforms that we've seen is about making parliament more family-friendly. Um, We saw in the last parliament with the Jenkins review that there's a lot needed to make life in parliament more um, accessible to women and to parents and so on. Um, Some of the changes that have already been brought in are moving parliament start times forward so that it can end earlier as well, uh, guaranteeing that parliament won't sit during holidays. Having no divisions after 6.30pm, so that gives a lot of members of parliament certainty that they can go home or make other plans, knowing that they won't be needed for a crucial vote. And limiting debate of urgent bills so it can't happen after 10pm. Listeners might remember the debate over the religious discrimination bill last year ran till five in the morning, and then the bill didn't happen, didn't go to the Senate. Yep. Um, That's the kind of inhospitable conditions that these changes will try and and limit. Um, In our democracy agenda for the 47th Parliament, the Australia Institute identifies a bigger problem, which is that if you don't have enough sitting weeks, then sitting days have to expand. Got to be packed. Exactly. (laughs) Um, It remains to be seen what will happen there, but it's promising signs. Yep. Um, You mentioned also the growth of the crossbench, and we've seen the fruits of that with the extra questions that they'll be allocated in question time. Yeah, so in question time, normally, uh, you know, it's a trade-off between what they call Dorothy Dix's to the government and questions from the opposition. How will that change under this parliament? 
Yeah, so the crossbenchers had already won the one key question, question six. Now they'll be allocated three throughout question time. Uh, and we've already seen the fruits of that. Um, the journalist Laura Tingle, a longtime political watcher, <laughs> uh, tweeted, pass the smelling salts, actual question and actual answer <laughs> spotted in question time. Um, that was a, a question from Zoe Daniel to Annika Wells around aged care. Yeah. Um, so... Of course, it, it remains to be seen. There's no formal limits on Dorothy Dix's, for example, even though that's been recommended. Um, but it's promising signs so far. Yeah. Um, and I must that must be painful for the coalition to have diminished number of questions for them and more given to the crossbench to reflect that change in numbers, I guess. <laughs> I imagine so. <laughs> um, and, Bill, it's a much more diverse parliament, this one. That's right. We've seen new members elected that are more representative of the diversity of cultural backgrounds and so on that we have in Australia. Um, there's been eight elected to the House of Representatives from non-European backgrounds, which brings the total numbers to 9% in the House of Representatives. From so still a long way to go, Bill. A long way <laughs> from representing the general public. You've got Linda Burney, who's the first Aboriginal woman to be appointed Minister for Indigenous Australians, following in the footsteps of Ken Wyatt, the first Indigenous Minister. One of the points that the Australia Institute's made about the Senate is that it's often been um, the place where diversity milestones are set. Yeah. Uh, and an example of that is the election of Fatima Payman from Western Australia. Uh, she's the first hijab-wearing Muslim woman elected to parliament. Uh, and her uh, father arrived in Australia by boat. He was held in immigration detention. Uh, and finally, his family could come out and join him. I think she'll be bringing a, a very useful and different perspective to Parliament. Yeah, it's not that long ago that Pauline Hanson was, you know, very in a derogatory manner wearing a burqa in the Parliament to kind of, I guess, ridicule uh, the religion there. So, yeah, hopefully uh, having such visible representation will help uh, the chambers move forward and, and be a little bit more progressive and more respectful. One of the things we've talked about a lot uh, since the election is the climate supermajority in the parliament. And we know that Labor has really prioritised um, its 43% emissions reduction target legislation. I think technically it says it doesn't have to, but it's clear that everyone kind of I guess, wants to turn over a new leaf and put a, a line in the sand or however you want to describe it. It kind of, it looks like it will get through, but it's it, it's a big change, I guess, from the previous parliament and, and the previous decade under the coalition government where we saw very few gains when it came to, to climate action. You're right. It's a breath of fresh air that these issues, climate change are being brought to the forefront debated, and ultimately it's looking like they'll be legislated. Um, it's a floor rather than a ceiling, so ambition can increase and hopefully will increase before 2030. 
uh, given we know that the science says that we need to keep fossil fuels in the ground and cut emissions drastically. And Bill, I know in the past, I mean, Labor has already said it doesn't really need this legislation, but it's been encouraging to see them essentially negotiating with the Greens and and independents um, to make some sensible amendments to this legislation, uh, especially considering they've got the numbers. Uh, hopefully that bodes well for how future negotiations on legislation might go. I hope so. You've seen already uh, crossbenchers flagging that they want to represent their constituencies. So Helen Haynes wants uh, additions that make sure regional Australia is looked after And, of course, the Greens have been pushing for more ambition. Yeah, a moratorium on new coal and gas mining. It doesn't look like that will be necessarily part of this 43% emissions reduction target legislation, but I have seen a bit of talk that perhaps that might come up as part of the EPBC reforms, perhaps a climate trigger being put in there. That would be really reassuring to see, and I think these early moves are planting the seed for later reforms. It's worth mentioning, too, that the coalition has flagged that it's going to bring greater ambition to the next federal election. So uh, we'll look out for that. Yes, um, I might put that under the column. I'll believe that when I see it. (laughs) The Catholic Church is lobbying federal politicians to oppose a bill to restore the ACT and the NT's right to legalise voluntary assisted dying, arguing that the change would amount to the Commonwealth sanctioning the killing of its own citizens. A private member's bill has been introduced to overturn the Kevin Andrews bill, something we have spoken about in the past quite recently. That bill stripped the territories of the right to debate or legislate for voluntary assisted dying. I know there's been attempts in the past to overturn this law. With this new parliament, is it looking more likely? It's looking very promising for that law finally getting overturned. A private member's bill from to Labor MPs from the territories uh, has passed the House of Representatives on Wednesday morning uh, by a quite thumping 99 votes to 37, Ooh. which is uh, very promising. Yeah. Unfortunately, the Senate was always going to be the more uh, narrow course, um, but there's early signs that are promising. Um, we have from 2018... David Leinhelm's unsuccessful attempt to overturn the Andrews bill, uh, which uh, was defeated 36 to 34. So very narrow. Very narrow. And a lot of the figures there are still in the Senate today. From the assurances that have been given and, and people's voting history, I think it's more likely than not to pass, but it's still going to require a bit of finesse. And finally, Bill, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, I think, has made a real point of making the referendum on a voice uh, to Parliament a priority for his government and really seeking to implement the Uluru Statement from the Heart for Voice, Treaty and Truth. Over the weekend, he released some draft wording for a potential referendum question to go to the public. It's been a long time since Australia has had a successful referendum, but the early indications are that people are supportive, is that right? Yeah, look, the referendum's going to be a a key part of the Albanese government's first term. Um, And so far, the signs are looking good. The Australia Institute released polling this month, asking Australians in June and July how they plan to vote. Uh, And it shows that nearly two in three Australians, 65%, uh, are planning to vote yes to a voice 
to enshrine a voice to Parliament for First Nations people in the Constitution. Uh, and that's an increase from June when we asked the question earlier. Um, the tricky part for a referendum is that it requires not just an absolute majority across the country, but also a majority in a majority of states. Uh, and luckily, the polling data is reassuring there. On that front as well. That's right. It's a, always a difficult task to get a referendum passed. It's been 22 years since we even had a referendum and 45 years since one succeeded. Uh, my hope is that if the voice referendum passes, there'll be more of an appetite to tackle other important changes to our constitution, uh, which might include a Bill of Rights, reforms to those Section 44 provisions that led to so many uh, parliamentarians uh, having to leave Parliament, and maybe recognition of local government as well. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Bill. Thank you for having me. This episode was recorded on Wednesday the 3rd of August and things may have changed since recording. You can visit australiainstitute.org.au for all our latest research and content and we're on Twitter at the Oz Institute with an AUS. My Twitter handle is ebony underscore Bennett with a double N double T. Bill Brown is at brown90, that's brown with an E. And our producer is Jennifer Macy with editing by Lizzie Jack. Our theme music is by Jonathan McFeet from Pulse and Thrum with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Stay safe out there and thanks for listening. Listener.